Thank you all for being with us today at River Oaks. It is so great to have you here. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. We are so glad to have you with us for our service today. Before we get into the message, just a few things I'd like to briefly mention. One has to do with the survey that was introduced last Sunday by Dr. Holly Brower. You'll see a QR code on the screen. You can use your phone if you'd like to hold up your camera to that and uh, access the survey. The purpose of this survey is to help us assess where we are as we seek to progress toward the fulfillment of our Vision 2025. It would be a great help to us if you would complete this survey. If you, you don't have to be a member of River Oaks, but if you consider our church to be your church home, We'd love to have your input. It'd take you about three minutes to complete. That would be a, a great help to us. Uh, one per person, of course, um, but we'd love it if you'd fill that out for us. Secondly, next Sunday begins our Discover Rock class. This is the last time I'll mention it. We ask that you register in advance. Discover Rock is our, our new member class. At the end of the class, you're, uh, you'll have the opportunity to become a member of the church. If you'd like to do that, you don't have to. But it's a great way to learn about uh, the beliefs, the structure of our church, and, and to find ways to get connected in our church. So if you're interested in that, if you would register online, that would be a great help. And then thirdly, I'm really excited about this. Next Sunday, we're beginning our spring study on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Pastor David Holcomb will kick us off with a message, an introductory message to the Gospel of Luke last week, and he has written our study titled Certainty. It is, I believe, uh, the longest small group study, the most in-depth and detailed one that we have ever had. Uh, copies are available today at the Resource Center. I think they're five bucks, which is uh, below the cost of printing these. He's done an outstanding job, and you can pick one of those up today. Well, today is the fifth and final day in our How to Pray series. And we are going to continue in the last category in what we typically call the Lord's Prayer. I think it might be better titled the Disciples' Prayer or the model prayer Jesus taught to his disciples. I'll read this prayer and then uh, take a few minutes to respond to a few questions that have been submitted. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Now today we'll get into the fifth and final category in the Lord's Prayer. But first, I did promise to try to take a little time to try, and I emphasize the word try, to respond to a few questions that some of you uh, submitted. Didn't get a lot, I think uh, five. And three of those dealt with what we talked about last week, forgiveness, forgiving other people. So uh, I want to I begin with a question about prayer, do the ones about forgiveness, and then the, the most all-encompassing question I'll save for the very end. This is the first question about prayer that came. What about conditional prayers? Now, I know the person who submitted this question has a lot of knowledge of the Bible, and he said... What about those prayers in the Old Testament like uh, the one prayed by Hannah? Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll commit him to you. He'll be devoted. He'll, He'll be devoted to the Lord's service. What about the prayer prayed by Jacob? God, if you will be with me and keep me and bless me and provide for me, well, then you'll be my God. And of everything you give me, I'll give you a whole tenth. Wow, it wasn't that big of him to do that. God, do all this for me, then you'll be my God, okay? There are a number of things in the Old Testament like this that we might call vows. People make a vow to the Lord. If you'll do this, God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. Now, we might make fun of that, but I suspect that most of us at some point in time have done something a bit like that. God, if you will bless me with this, if you will let me close this sale, if you will let me win the lottery, I'll give 90% of it to you. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do something in response. So what about this whole idea of conditional prayers? I don't see this pattern in the New Testament, and I don't think it's the appropriate way to pray. I don't think it's the best way to pray. We really don't have the right to put conditions on God at all. He has the right to put them on us. And the only conditions I see that God presents us with for prayer is to come to the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. It is enough to come to the Father through Jesus, the Son. Now, as we've said, there are certain guidelines for prayers that we can expect to be answered, like praying according to God's will. As John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 5, if we ask anything according to his will, we know he hears us. If we know he hears us, we know we have the petitions we have asked of him. But as far as conditional praying, I don't see it as the New Testament way. I think Jesus gave us a better way, and that way is access, access to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Very good question, because there are a number of prayers like that in the Old Testament. Secondly, concerning forgiveness. Could you define forgiveness and describe what it might look like? Now, I think I understand where this question is coming from, and it's an excellent question, because many of us have forgiven someone only to have feelings of uh, maybe resentment or less than positive feelings returned regarding the person we've forgiven. How do we know when we've really forgiven? 
not an easy question to answer, and I always try to look for, for uh, something in Scripture to respond to a question when possible. And so here's what I would say. How can we know when we've truly forgiven? When we can sincerely pray for God's good work in another person's life, then I think we can say we've forgiven them. And I look to the example of Jesus on the cross when he looked out at those who were crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Further, we could look to the example of Stephen, the first early church martyr, recorded in Acts chapter 7. Stephen was being literally stoned to death. And he looked out and he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think we, when we sincerely pray for God's good work in a person's life, we can know that we have forgiven. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to be good friends with the person that has wronged you. It doesn't mean you have to do business with the person again, the person who's cheated you. In fact, it would probably be unwise to do that. It doesn't mean you have to release that person from legal consequences that might be rightly and properly do them for an offense that they committed. Certainly appropriate to let the law fully work its course. But can we pray as Jesus did? If we're looking for a definition of what it means for us to forgive someone, how we should forgive, I know of no better place than Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, which says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the model for us. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Closely related to this question was a question about taking communion when you're struggling with forgiving someone or whether you have forgiven someone. So I would answer it in a similar way, but I would say this. If you're struggling whether you should take communion um, because communion is that time we take the Lord's Supper when we, we reflect on what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate what he's done. We make a visible proclamation of what he's done for us and his work on the cross. But Paul the Apostle tells us to be sure we're rightly discerning the Lord's body. And so often we'll take time in our church to to us wait in silence for the Lord to bring to mind perhaps someone we need to forgive. And I think that's what's prompted this question. I would say this, when you have done as best you can what God's word says to do in forgiving the person who's wronged you, when you've done as best you can to forgive them, and when you can do, as I said before, pray sincerely for God's good work in their lives, I think you should go forward and take communion. Do not wait until your feelings change. If we waited until we were sinlessly perfect to take communion, none of us would ever take communion. And those feelings of resentment, what someone's done to harm you, they're likely to come back. Just use that as a prompt to pray for the person who's wronged you. So I would say don't go without forgiveness too long. Um, when you've done as best you can what God's word says to do and you've asked God to help you overcome the feelings, I don't think you need to continue to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper.
One other question related to forgiveness. What would you say to those of us who struggle with forgiving ourselves when we release and confess our sins to God? Excellent question. Excellent question. People with an especially sensitive conscience often struggle here. Uh, you may not have a problem forgiving somebody who's wronged you, but you struggle with that thing you did years ago. It comes back to haunt you. Uh, sometimes you still feel guilty for it. You feel condemned about it. Um, maybe you even feel undeserving of God's complete acceptance. Here's what I would recommend. First of all, remember that God wants to forgive us. Remember, Jesus is teaching us to pray Forgive us our debts. That's because he knows God wants to forgive us. One of the greatest verses of assurance in the Bible is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It depends on him. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness means that leaves nothing for us to have to deal with or to earn or to deserve. As Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, only God knows how far the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. If there's something like that bothering me, I like to reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done, what Jesus has done. Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' work is complete. So what right do I have to think that my sin was not covered by his complete work? Was his work in some way inadequate to cover my case, my sin? Am I actually dishonoring him and his work by holding on to something that I've already repented of and God has already forgiven? Not that that bad thing we've done is going to forever leave our consciousness or our memory. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 reflects on his life before Christ and said, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor. In fact, he refers to himself as the foremost, the chief of sinners, he says, so that in me God might show his mercy is an example to all those who would believe. You may remember that past thing you did, but let it drive you to gratitude in the gospel and the mercy provided. Yeah, that happened. But praise God that he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. He took them. Let it drive you to gratitude in the cross of Jesus Christ. And as Hebrews 10 and verse 17 says, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Jesus has done it all. Rest in that. Now, there's one more question I received uh, that I do not want to skim over, but it is so all-encompassing about prayer that I would like to save it for the end today. 
a few minutes from now when we end this short series on prayer. First, though, I'd like to go back to the Lord's Prayer and the fifth and final category. And I say category because I think in this model we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is giving us five primary categories about which to pray. The first one has to do with honoring God's name, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The second has to do with praying for God's kingdom to come and his will be done on earth. The third has to do with praying for what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. The fourth has to do with forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the fifth and final one is this. Jesus calls us to pray for protection from temptation and deliverance from the evil one. As verse 13 of Matthew 6 reads, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, you may be wondering, why did I put in the sermon outline, evil slash the evil one? Because that is a perfectly appropriate translation here. The, in the Greek language, the, the definite article, the, is used before the word evil. And in the New International Version, the NIV, I expect a lot of you use that when it's translated this way, deliver us from the evil one. Now, who is the evil one? The evil one is Satan, the devil. Um, behind temptation is oftentimes the tempter. Temptation can arise from our own sinful desires. The Apostle James says we can be drawn away and in Tice by our own lust, but we're also uh, shown in the Bible that Satan is, he's defined as actually, he's called one of his titles, the tempter. Jesus, we read just two chapters earlier in Matthew, was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And verse 3 says, The tempter came and said to Christ and said to him, Satan is called the tempter. God may test our faith, and when that happens, he's doing it to build us up. But Satan tempts us to sin. He entices us to sin. He draws us to sinful actions in order to tear us down. The word devil, uh, diabolos, uh, in the Greek language, translated devil, means accuser or slanderer. And we were talking a few minutes ago about having trouble uh, forgetting past things we've done, even when we've repented of them. We've talked about forgiving other people. Oftentimes, these things are made more difficult because we have an adversary, the devil. He's referred to in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, as the accuser of the brethren, accusation slander. This is part of his work. It's, it's included in the very meaning of the word devil. Satan is the tempter, and we should not ignore the fact that Satan's power in this world is significant. Now, we see this in a number of places in Scripture, but it's very important to understand Satan is not just a figment of imagination. He's, he's not just some representation given to us in Scripture to stand for all the evil in the world. He's a very real spiritual being 
an adversary who wars against the children of God and the purposes of God. The Apostle Paul, in speaking of his work, and in indicating the significance of his influence and his power, talking about unbelievers, says in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds. Satan is actually called the little g God of this world. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Now, prince is a translation of the word ruler, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So these are the nouns we've seen for Satan here in these two, uh, uh, two verses. He's, he's little g God, little p prince, little s spirit. He's a very real spiritual being, and he seeks to oppose God's purposes and God's people. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that when Satan was thrown down to the earth, he went off to make war on God's people. So just as Jesus was confronted by temptations of the devil, so will we be. And it's important not to deny his existence or his reality. However, believers find their position of victory over Satan in submission to God. And this is why we pray daily in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. It's a way of submitting ourselves to God. James the Apostle in James chapter 4 gives us some of the, the, the clearest instruction about our posture toward the devil. When he writes, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The place of spiritual strength for the Christian, for the believer, is found in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Submission to God. And when we're praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, we are regularly recalling our submission to God. We are submitting to God. To pray, lead us not into temptation, implies that we want to be kept from temptation. And we're really trusting God to help us. God wants to keep us, but we have to want to be kept. When you pray, lead me not into temptation, Lord, that means you want to be kept from temptation. It's a reminder that you shouldn't go out and put yourself in the environment of temptation. If it's being alone in your room with your phone or your computer, you avoid the environment. If it's being around certain people who always lead you into temptation, it means not being around those people. Avoid the environment of temptation. It's implied in the very prayer request. In this world, we live in the midst of spiritual conflict. Our own desires might be used to draw us to sin. Satan the tempter might be used to draw us to sin. But we find spiritual power in submitting to God. And so as part of the Lord's Prayer, before we end the prayer, we pray this prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one. God, I submit myself to you. Let me walk faithfully with you this day. So, we've come to the end of the Lord's Prayer. The disciples' prayer, rather. This prayer that Jesus gave us is a model for how to pray. 
And before we leave the whole subject of prayer, there is one more question that I told you I would try, and I emphasize only try here because it's one I really can't answer. Um, it's the why question. Someone wrote, why has my loved one, a faithful, godly Christian, not been healed of a devastating disease? We really shouldn't spend five weeks on prayer without at least talking a few minutes about this whole mystery of unanswered prayer. Because if you've prayed for very long, you have, as I have, encountered it. In fact, I've encountered it a whole lot. First of all, let me say, I can't answer the question. I cannot answer it. Um, the Bible does give some uh, um, idea of reasons for which a prayer may not be answered. Not that I think any of them apply in the case that was sent by this person because I know who sent it. And I don't think any of these apply. But the Bible does give us some reasons for unanswered prayer. Um, it's possible that sin could be related to disease. Jesus' disciples one time uh, were walking with Christ and saw a man who'd been blind from birth. And in John chapter 9, they said, Lord, who sinned this man or his parents? He was born blind. And Jesus said, neither, neither. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And Jesus went on to heal the man. There is another case in John chapter 5 and verse 14 where Jesus healed someone and they said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing befall you. Could sin have something to do with illnesses? Certainly. We think of things like sexually transmitted disease, and there certainly could be a link. I don't think that's the answer to our question here today. Other reasons for a failure of, uh, to, to see some answer Certainly unbelief, people who don't turn to Jesus or believe in Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus went to his hometown, Nazareth. That's the place where we read the words of prophets not without honor in his own hometown. The Bible says he could do no mighty work there, and he marveled because of their unbelief. There can be a, certainly a connection there. James tells us sometimes we ask and don't receive because we ask for things to spend on our own lust or our own passions. But none of these are reasons that apply to most cases of unanswered prayer for healing that I am aware of in our own church. So the question remains, why? Why has my loved one, a faithful, godly Christian, not been healed of a devastating disease? And I do have to say, I don't know. I remember years ago, many years ago, I was 31 years old. And I had um, just was studying the Bible all the time and, and particularly uh, had come to believe strongly in God's power to heal, um, strongly in the need for us to have faith in his power to heal. And my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. He was 56 years old. He was in good shape, played tennis all the time, healthy. Um, but it was very fast working and aggressive. And um, I was praying for my dad to be healed. I'd never fasted this long before. Uh, I fasted for three days. And I was utterly convinced, as much as I think I could be, 
that my dad was going to be healed. I would, I would say I felt positive that he was going to be healed. And he died. And it was one of those, I guess you called a crisis of faith kind of time that a lot of people have. And I don't really remember how I processed all that. But the one thing I know is that by God's grace, he didn't let me turn away from him. But he drew me close. And I sensed his loving presence and his kindness. And so the one thing I would say to those who deal with unanswered prayer for a loved one, maybe a wonderful, good, godly Christian where you don't see the answer yet, you don't see the answer yet, is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, There's so many things about prayer that I don't understand. But I know this. Um, Well, I'll say this. And by the way, I very much believe in God's power to heal today. And we're called to pray for God's healing work. We're called to pray one for another that they may be healed We believe in anointing people with oil and praying for healing, as James chapter 5 and verse 14 says to do. But I can't answer the question. Why has my loved one, a faithful, godly Christian, not been healed of a devastating disease? When I see tragedy, um, as we've seen recently from uh, some members of our church, terrible tragedy, I see uh, children suffer. For me, I think that's one of the hardest things. I see these things I don't understand. Um, There's one word that helps me a lot. And that is the word eternity. Eternity. Yes, we pray for healing. Yes, I believe God heals. We're supposed to pray and trust Him. But when we don't see things go as we think they should in this life, I remember the word eternity. I think of King David in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12. He had an infant son that was dying. David fasted, prayed for God to be healed. The little boy died. David said to the servants who inquired about the situation, I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. I find hope in those words. Find hope for every person who's not only lost an infant child, I believe even a child in the womb. David says, I'll see him. I'll see him one day. Not in this life, but I'll see him again. David's eyes were on eternity. This world is broken by sin and by the God of this world, Satan. But there will come a day where there will be no mourning or crying or tears. Jesus lived with a perspective of eternity, the great eternity before him. The apostle Paul lived with a perspective of the great eternity before him. And I'd like to read just a few words the apostle Paul wrote because the apostle Paul, his ministry was almost synonymous with suffering. When God called Paul, he said to the man who would lay hands on Paul and pray for him to receive his sight, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. 
And then Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, now Paul's afflictions were serious. He was beaten with rods on a number of occasions, whipped, flogged. He was stoned with stones until dead. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Sometimes I like to think of this life on earth as, as a little dot on this never-ending line that is eternity. If you can picture that just for a moment. Our life on earth is contained in this dot. It might be 70, 80, 90, 100 years. But it's infinitesimally small in light of the endless eternity. Now, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the life you always wanted here on earth. Everything about happiness, everything about goodness. The scripture doesn't say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would get everything just as he always wanted it and always be perfectly happy and satisfied here on earth. It says whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the real heart of the good news of the gospel. And so I can't answer this specific question. Um, there are a lot of things I can't answer. But the one thing I would say, never turn away from God. You don't see your prayer answered. You don't see what you want. Keep praying, keep persevering, keep believing. Jesus calls us to do that. But despite the outcome, Never turn away from him. He is the only one. As Peter said, Lord, who, who else is there to go to? I'm not going to leave you. You're the only one. You're the only way. You're the source of life. You're the source of eternal life. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Many people have discovered that in those crisis times when a prayer was not answered because they turned to God and not away from him, that became a real stepping stone in their walk with God, their fellowship with God, their spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity. I think that was the case for me when my dad died. And the last thing I would say is that for the believer in Jesus, the hope for the, the things in this life that are just unexplainable, the tragedies, the terrible things, the hope is this, in eternity, for the believer, all will be made well. In eternity, all will be made well. And so I'll end with this verse from these verses from Revelation, the Apostle John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is going to happen one day, by the way. This is going to happen. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Would you join me as we pray? Father, if I've taught or said anything wrongly, would you overrule it and lead your people in the good and right way? Lord, we ask that you would encourage your people. Make us a people who pray. Give us a joy in your presence, a joy in your fellowship. Fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we will pray as we ought to pray. Lord, I especially pray for any here who are struggling with not understanding <clears throat> some unanswered prayer or some unexplained tragedy. Please draw them close, Father. Draw them close as the great shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd that you are, draw them close with your comforting presence, with your healing presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we worship the Lord again, just a couple quick things I want to mention. A couple of uh, resources regarding prayer. This book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, is a very practical book, very valuable and helpful book. Uh, I recommend it. It, it. it really emphasizes what God does in us through prayer rather than so much a, a how-to book on prayer. It's what God's doing in us, how he's working on us, particularly uh, in the, some of the difficult things like we've talked about today. So I do recommend that. Prayer by Tim Keller is a, is a classic foundational book. It's, it's a, a, a higher level uh, theologically than most books on prayer. So if you're not ready for that, quotes by people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, you might want to uh, hold off on that one and stick with the Paul Miller book. Last thing I want to mention, I am really excited about. Pastor Sonny Flowers brought us this app called Bless Every Home. And um, you put it on your phone on your computer. You see the QR code there. It is also in your bulletin at the very bottom of the outline uh, today. Those of you watching online can get the uh, QR code there. Um, or you can just put it on your computer uh, and use it through your email. But what it does, it every day, you'll take your address and it will send you the list of names of your neighbors. And I've been doing it the past week and I love it because it's helping me learn my neighbor's names. And so every day it sends you maybe five of your neighbors <coughs> and then gives a suggested prayer to pray for growth in faith. And um, it's, by the way, if you're struggling with how to pray, that's a good way. There's some good suggested prayers there. What would happen if every one of us this spring began to prayer walk our neighborhoods, walk through our neighborhoods, praying by name for all of our neighbors all over this community, surrounding area? What might God do? that level of prayer. So I have found it so far to be very helpful and would recommend it to you as a, as a good resource uh, 
in regard to praying for others. Finally, before we worship uh, the Lord again, um, don't forget those of you here to fill out the Hey, I'm Here card and drop it in the basket as you leave with your prayer request. Those of you online can fill it out online. And then finally, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your continued giving to support our church. We are very, very, very grateful for that. Let's worship the Lord together now, shall we?